All right, we are going to talk about um, Mark chapter 9. Man, we made it, we've, we've been one year in the, the Gospel of Mark, and we're in Mark chapter 9, and we're going to, is that funny? We'll get there, I got probably, you know what's funny? I was thinking this week, now there, okay, now this is a tangent. I'm thinking I need to go back and reteach Mark because there's so many great one-liners in the book of Mark that just, like this week, you know, the transfiguration, you know, the, the disciples are enveloped in a cloud. We're going to read this. And a voice comes from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And that to me is like 10 weeks of sermons right there. So, and then there's like, you know, when he heals, they're going to go, remember the next passages, they're going to go down the mountain. They're arguing the man whose son is possessed by the demon. And then you get that, that, you know, Jesus says, um, uh, he says, the man says, if you can do anything, please, please help us and take pity on us. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. Remember that next line? I do believe, help my unbelief. There's all these fantastic one-liners in the book of Mark. And I think I'm going to reteach all these one-liners in the book of Mark when I'm done with the book of Mark. So take that and get ready for that in 2027 when I'm done with the book of Mark. <laughs> um, the transfiguration. Now, I want to take you back to March uh, 22nd, 2020. Does that mean anything to anyone? March 22nd, 2020. Yeah. What does it mean? That's when everything shut down. Now, let me, you, let me show you a picture of when everything shut down in our house. Because this was a Sunday morning when I did the first, this was how I was preaching on March. This was the first. So there's all sorts of, Nolan, you'd love this. There's all sorts of Easter eggs in this picture, right? There's, and you can't see them because it's kind of our projector might be a little... There's like a whole Paw Patrol setup down here. I, my thing's not. There's a car and driver magazine that's right here propping up my computer to make sure it's level. This is my the stool from my daughter's bathroom. So my computer's on my daughter's bathroom, propped up by car and driver. My wife has done a really nice job to make this all look nice. We have the communion elements. I think this actually might have been a Hawaiian roll that was probably <laughs> left over. But I taught on this, the transfiguration, this, the, when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. This was March 22nd, 2020, which was, I was kind of having a little bit of a throwback moment of like, oh man, can I tell you guys, this was like, I hated doing this. The, the online, the Facebook sermons, you know, that whole time. Man, being together with y'all this morning is, is so good. So I have a, a few like things actually that I was like looking over that sermon back from, and I would assume that you, since there was nothing going on in the world at that moment, Nothing. You guys are probably remember that sermon perfectly. Do you guys? Like everybody's like, oh yeah, I remember what he said. And there was that point. And then he had made this. And they had that joke that he told that was so good. No, there was a global pandemic happening at the moment. Nobody was paying attention to my, my Paw Patrol sermon. Um, so we're in the book of Mark. And we're going to talk about the transfiguration, right? Um, and this one, we were doing a whole series on, this is probably hard to see, the mountains in Matthew, we were looking through the, the gospel of Matthew through the various mountains that Jesus would encounter. Um, and in the book of Mark, as we're encountering this, we have been utilizing this paradigm based on, morning, based on the healing of the blind man, right? Remember the healing of the blind man? We talked about this, I think, two, three, two weeks ago. Jesus touches him, right? And the guy looks up. And he says, I see people, they look like trees walking around, right? And then Jesus touches him again. His eyes are open, his sight is restored, he sees everything clearly. Again, isolated, like Jesus, 
did you not get the formula right? Was something wrong? Did you, uh, did, did you not touch them in the right way? Was it the spit that you use? What's going on? It's a puzzling healing. But in context, the, it's this critical role to the unfolding narrative, which is that is an enacted parable, right? It is giving us a picture of what is to come, right? So this kind of two-step healing, this two-step eye-opening of the blind man ends up being the paradigm for which you understand Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, right? Is Jesus is opening the eyes of, of people, right? And oftentimes, it's not just a quick, like, hey, let me touch you and you're done. It is that process of opening the eyes. We talked about this uh, last week, where um, people are saying that, you know, hey, Jesus is asking, who do people say that I am? Oh, you're a prophet, you know, Elijah, John the Baptist. And then Peter says, you're the Messiah, right? So there's this kind of like first healing or, you know, eh, you're, you're, we think you're a prophet. And then Peter has this second level of clarity where he says you're Messiah, right? Even his identity or his thought about the Messiah, Peter's thought about the Messiah needed to be healed or seen again, right? Peter's Messiah was a political leader, was a geographic restorer, was an economic liberator, right? And Jesus says, no, 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 the Messiah that I'm going to be, the way I have to open your eyes to the Messiah is the Son of Man, right? It's the suffering servant. So now we're going to, again, see this again where there's another healing, there's another revelation, there's another opening of the eyes in which the Messiah, right, is, is kind of open, their eyes are opened to the divinity of Jesus, right? To Jesus as God's Son. Remember up until this point, there's... There's not, really, um, there's not really this identity or this association with, with Jesus as divine, right? So we're going to see that opening this week. Now, let's read this story together, and we'll read it in the round, Mark chapter 9. And we're going to read verses 1 through 10. Verse 1, I guess it depends on what Bible or what translation or how you're reading it. Verse 1 often gets lumped in at the end of chapter 8, right? And what's interesting about that is, I, I mean, I didn't get too deep into the weeds about why translators lumped it there, right? Let me just read this. Jesus says to them, Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before the, they see the kingdom of God come with power, right? Some people think like, Jesus is telling that people are going to live until they see like the second coming of God, like the real coming, the, the final, you know, victory won by God. But what Jesus is talking about is exactly what's going to happen here in 9, uh, 2 through 10, right? They are going to see the kingdom of God come with power on this mountain. So Jesus says to them, he says to the disciples, I tell you, some who are standing here, Peter, James, and John, right? will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Someone else pick it up there. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up the high mountain where they were all alone. There he was trans transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. A voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Then suddenly they looked around, and Moses and Elijah were gone, and only Jesus was with them. As they descended the mountainside, he told them never to mention what they had seen until after he had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but often talked about it and wondered what he meant by rising from the dead. Yeah, thank you. And see, there's three sermons in there that i got to go re-preach. Like, how great is that line? They didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Like, think about that whole paradigm of just, like, people who, they just start blabbing things out because they're afraid. There's a sermon. Um, there's another sermon, again, uh, this is my son who I love, listen to him. I want to talk a little bit about that, you know. Suddenly, there's another sermon. When they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with him except for Jesus, right? Anyway, I, I, so get ready. A couple more years, I'm going to come back to some of these ones. Um, I was thinking about this, right? So transfiguration, what does it mean? Let's just start real simply with the definition, how we understand it. Transfigure, it is a transformation, right? It's to change a thing into a different thing. Here's what was fascinating to me. I, didn't, I don't know if I would have picked this up the first kind of couple go-arounds. It implies a change that exalts or glorifies, right? So, for example, you would say, Joy transfigured her face. Now, we are not making reference to our friend Joy here making movements of her face, but Joy transfigured. I had it in capital, like as a sentence, and I thought that would really confuse people. So, um, Joy transfigured her face, right? Again, that would be an example that would exalt or glorify. But you wouldn't say something like bitterness transfigured her face, right? So it's a change that exalts or glorifies. It kind of goes from like maybe a lower level to a higher level. This is what we're seeing with Jesus, right? Jesus, I was kind of asking this question again, from what to what? From what to what, Jesus, right? Jesus is going from this kind of I don't want to get too technical here, right? He's going from human, so to speak. People think he's a prophet. People think he's a messiah or, you know, this messiah, this military leader, this ruler. And now he's kind of going into divinity, right? Now, again, not to get too technical on this, Jesus was, is, always is, will be divine, right? So it wasn't like, hey, he was just this normal human and then he goes up onto the mountain and then God makes him divine and now... He always was divine. But again, we have to think about this up to this point in the Gospel of Mark. The disciples do not really have any divine association with, with, with God or with Jesus, right? Like, sure, they, they think that God has sent him somehow, that he maybe has anointing or he has some sort of revelation of what he's supposed to do. But for the disciples, this is an absolute... <coughs> transformational light bulb moment for the disciples, right? This was uh, a watershed of their understanding of who Jesus was. And Peter, who's up there, who's so frightened that he doesn't even know what to say, later on in his life, as he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor, right? So the churches kind of begin happening. This is probably about 30 years or so after Jesus um, is crucified and resurrected. Peter's writing these letters to these churches in Asia Minor. Now he knows what to say, because this is what he says. He says to these churches, he says, we were not retelling some masterfully crafted legend when we informed you of the power and appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
we saw his magnificence and splendor unveiled before our very eyes. Yes, Father God lavished upon him radiant glory and honor when his distinct voice spoke out of the realm of majestic glory, endorsing him with these words. This is my cherished son, marked by my love. All my delight is found in him. And we ourselves heard that voice resound from the heavens while we were with him on the holy mountain. And they says this, because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. Pay close attention to what they wrote, for their, their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. I love, it's really hard to, to focus and hear my son screeching in the background, but it is, we're, we're getting there. Because you, I mean, you guys might not know it, but I'm like, oh, that's James screeching out there. He's probably upset that he has to wear a bow tie today. This is what Peter says, right? Peter understands that something happened on that mountain, right? Where Jesus was transfigured from one thing to the other. And he had to tell people about it. He had to write it down and inform people. Um, the second kind of transfiguration that happens, I think I only have two more, um, is that the suffering, Jesus' suffering and death isn't incompatible with glory. Right? His suffering and death is not incompatible with glory. Uh, Elise, you were praying a little bit earlier, and we have seen as a church, we have seen a few deaths in close proximity to, to those around us. Um, and probably for the most part, we've never seen someone on their deathbed or in the final stages of their life. Um, I, don't, I don't mean to be like, you know, even when, you go, when we go and serve in Brookdale, right? And some people in Brookdale are, they're, that's kind of it for them, right? And you never sit there and think like, wow, these people, look, look, at, look at, you know, again, on their deathbed, look so amazing, so vibrant, so powerful, so glorious. We never, we never think that, right? But what's interesting about this moment here that, G, that happens in Jesus, right, is that one of the things that he is kind of fusing together in this transfiguration is that his suffering and his death isn't incompatible with his glory, right? Uh, David Garland says it like this, and I, I took this from him, but he, he says it like this, and, and he'll expand on it. He says, The transfiguration, therefore, serves to confirm that the suffering Jesus will endure is not incompatible with his glory. And he says this, I like this. The scene functions like a hologram, right? No, that's good you're here this morning, because I got this picture for you. Remember this hologram right here, Princess Leia, right? That's exactly where your mind went, wasn't it? The scene functions like a hologram. Like when you see a hologram, right, you kind of see something, but you can actually see through the hologram. And as we're seeing through the hologram, it got awfully warm in here, didn't it? Yeah? Or is it just me? Everybody feeling nice and Christmas toasty? Christmas toasty? Okay, I'll turn it off. I'm done in about five minutes. We'll turn it off. Um, scene functions like a hologram, right? For a brief moment, the disciples glimpse the truth as divine glory shines through the veil of suffering. Remember what Jesus was just talking about in chapter 8, right? He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be killed, right? Jesus is saying that his Messiahship, the way that he's going to, to come to power, so to speak, is through suffering. So they're seeing his suffering, right? And on the mountain, they're seeing his glory. I love this image. It functions like a hologram, right? It foreshadows the time 
when God will gloriously enthrone Jesus after the degradation of the cross. And I I would even ask Garland too, because I think that there is even glory on the cross, right? As Jesus is dying, right? This white flash of the splendor to come brightens the dark cloud of tribulation that presently hangs over Mark's first readers and confirms Jesus's promise that those who follow and suffer for him will have not done so in vain, right? So we think about Jesus again on the cross and at sometimes we understand that, that even at his lowest moment, right? When he's naked and beaten and mocked and spit on, at the same time, we're getting this, this glorious image at the same time that his suffering, right? His death is not incompatible and the transfiguration, one of the things that it's doing here, Mark's doing for us, is it's fusing those things together into our mind, right? Even for us, I would say I use this line at funerals because, you know, on your deathbed, at our lowest moment, God is doing his highest work, right? Think about somebody on their deathbed. At their lowest moment, God is about to do his highest work, okay? So, one last thing, then we'll turn the heater off. Listening for transformation. Again, you get this, this one-liner, this is my son whom I love, listen to him, right? Um, I had a great parenting moment. Oh man, this, this made my, I soared on this for quite some time. My daughter, Jeanette, you don't know about this. I soared on this for quite some time. My wings were out. I was flying around my house, flapping like a hawk. My daughter, Jeanette, my middle daughter, who is the one with the least amount of self-control, um, she has this, journal that she writes um, weekly, kind of tells about what she's doing in the class, and she, uh, and then we respond to it. So she comes home week in and week out, and this is what we did in the class, and then I say, oh, that's great, you know, nice, I'm glad you had this, and you got a good grade, and you had fun playing this game. So this was a couple weeks ago that she wrote this one. Now, I know it's going to be really hard, so I'll interpret. So here it is. I'm sure you guys can all read this. She said, another thing we did was watch Ivan today. What's that book, Jolyn? Ivan. What's that? One and only Ivan. Okay, one and only Ivan. We got to have special treat. The treats were mini marshmallows, yogurt, raisins, me, I don't know what these two, meatballs and poop. She told me, and like, I'm like commenting on it, and I was like, ew, you ate poop, so like. But then she says this, whoppers, carrots, apples, and bananas. And then she says this, I had marshmallows, yogurt raisins, whoppers, carrots. And then she says, since you probably wouldn't want me eating all those sweets. Which I was like, oh, yes. She's, she, you know, because I don't. And Robin, my wife, knows I am a, I am a terror in our home about how much sweets our kids eat. And it drives me absolutely insane. Like, it's just from one to the next to the next. And I'm like, stop, stop. You kids are addicted to sugar. And I know I should be, you know. So she says this. So uh, she says, since you probably wouldn't want me eating all those sweets, right? Uh, I think that's about it. So I'm thinking about this. And while I'm over here, I'll just turn this off real quick. I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about this passage, right, where the father speaks and he's speaking to the disciples. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. A couple levels of, 
of what I would say, you know, kind of listening. There's obviously the direct enforcement obedience, right? With this, with this level, I just tell my kids, don't eat candy, it's bad for you. And I can directly enforce that with my kids, right? Like, don't do that. You're not allowed to do that. I'll take it from you and throw it away, right? And parents, we have that power, right? And then there's kind of that second level which Jeanette got to, right? She kind of internalized this, right? Because I've been telling them, it's bad for you. Like, stop. It's not good for you. And she's like, Dad, you probably wouldn't want me eating all those sweets. Now, I don't know why you wouldn't want me eating all those sweets, but you probably wouldn't want me. So I'm going to have, see, the Whoppers really kind of ruined it, didn't it? Like, because she was doing good, and then she got to the Whoppers right here in the middle. I'm like, how many Whoppers did you actually eat, right? But, you know, you probably don't want me eating all those sweets, right? And so with, with that level, you know, somebody kind of changes their de decision-making kind of based on these external forces, right? Um, and then I would say you kind of get to the end here, which I think is, is what we're all looking for in life, right? Which is, which is like actual transformation, right? At some point, I think most of us as adults, like nobody really has power over you anymore, Right? Nobody can take the candy from you. Nobody could remove the bowl of ice cream. You guys are looking at each other. Are you taking candy from her or is she taking candy from you? <laughs> like nobody can do that, right? But you're not trying to please daddy. You're not writing in your journal like, hey, daddy, you know. But you just learn that like sugar's bad for you, right? And again, again, not that you can't eat, please, you're going to leave this sermon like, oh, the preacher didn't like sugar. It, you know, if you eat a lot of it, you become lethargic, right? Your teeth get all rotten. You get moody because your blood sugar's going all over the place. You get those cravings. You get hang... Like, honestly, like, we can be real frank about this. Like, sugar can... I mean, when we know this as adults, right? And at some point, you'd be like, yeah, I'm not going to crush a banana split every night after, after dinner because I know that it's just bad for me, right? So when I think about this, you know... Jesus says to his disciples, listen to him, right? And I think that, you know, we as disciples, you know, again, we're on this journey to listen to him, right? How many people never, you know, people leave church, leave religion, leave because they never really make it past this point, right? They never make it past this point, right? So a church would say, hey, you need to give a portion of your income back to the Lord, right? And people are like, oh, okay, I'll write the right? And they never make it down here to see the beautiful transformation of generosity in their soul, right? So a lot of times people leave the church. They just, they just think that all it is, a bunch of rules, do this, don't do that. Maybe they get to the point where they're like, oh, you know, you, you probably wouldn't want me doing that, so I won't do it, you know? But they never come to see the joy of transformation, the joy of what it really means to listen to the words of God, right? Two quotes. I think that is it. This is my last two. Two quotes and we're done. Uh, Dale Bruner, uh, on commenting on this, he says this. I, I love this. I I've thought about this for, I fell out of my seat when I, I read this. I'm not even kidding. He says, church leadership is tempted to think that the main service it performs for Christ is to be very busy for him. A lot of people get uh, saved into church activity. That's wrong. So the church's main service of Christ then and now is to give opportunities for him to be listened to. And here's where you'll fall out of your seat. 
right listening will always lead to unfrenetic obedience. Write that down, get it tattooed on you. Right listening will always lead to unfrenetic obedience, right? Eugene Peterson, uh, a lot of you guys know, he wrote the message to pastor a small church in Virginia for his whole life. And he said his primary job as a pastor is to help people hear, help people hear God's voice and for them to respond appropriately, right? Um, yeah, you all know, and I say this and I pray this all the time and, you know, my prayer has always been that you guys would just to hear the voice of God, right? Um, and if there was a Christmas tie-in, which I've, I've obviously avoided for most of the sermon, it would be to give him the gift of listening to him, right? It would be to give God the gift of listening to him, of saying, Father, I'm here to listen to you. I'll give you the time and the space. I'll open my heart. I want to see this transformation in my life, right? I want to see this change. A lot of times we just kind of end up here and we never really make it down here to seeing that real transformation that comes from listening. Again, um, that, that comment at the right listening is going to lead to that unfrenetic obedience, right? Um, that's all I got for this morning. Um, I want to close us. We're going to do Eucharist, but we're going to do it all together at the very end. And the Eucharist, as we're going to encounter it this morning, in some senses, is our transfiguration, right? Is our, our transformation. Um, where we take it as a step, as a step of obedience toward God, right? Anytime you take a step of obedience towards God, it's, again, that definition exalts or glorifies. That's where we're moving to. So we'll take it together, the, the Eucharist, uh, but we're going to do it at the end. We're going to bring the kids in. We're all going to take it together. Um, so let me close this in prayer. Mr. Brian will do a couple Christmas songs. And then we got the, the real moment when Jordan's going to come lead us in the Christmas songs with the kids. So, um, Lord, again, I, <laughs> I don't mean to cliche the sermon with, you know, this Christmas cliche and, and gifts and but you know my heart is that the folks in this room would give the gift of listening to you. Um, they see that transformation. They would see that unfrenetic, that calm, that settled, that peaceful obedience. That's what we ask for. That we hear your voice. I'm thinking about the time when you spoke to me about my job. And I heard your voice, and it just led to a very calm, unfrenetic obedience to follow you. And so for the folks in this room, whatever they're facing, and they call out to you, God, what, what can I do here? How can I respond appropriately? What is the word that you'd have me do? You'd give it to them. And we just give you that gift of coming to you. Father, what is it? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? Thank you. Thank you for, again, you came to this earth to speak truth to us, to speak clearly to us, and we receive that. Again, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Yeah, the kids can come in and, and sing some songs. <laughs>